Section 49 of The Genius by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Twenty. The matter of securing admission to this house was quickly settled. The nephew, a genial, intelligent man of thirty-four, as Eugene discovered later, had no objection. It appeared to Eugene that in some way he contributed to the support of this house, though Mrs. Hibberdell obviously had some money of her own. A charmingly furnished room on the second floor adjoining one of the several baths was assigned him, and he was at once admitted to the freedom of the house. There were books, a piano, but no one to play it, a hammock, a maid of all work, and an atmosphere of content and peace. Mrs. Hibberdell, a widow, presumably of some years of widowhood, was of that experience and judgment in life which gave her intellectual poise. She was not particularly inquisitive about anything in connection with him, and so far as he could see from the surface indications, was refined, silent, conservative. She could jest and did, in a subtle, understanding way. He told her quite frankly at the time he applied that he was married, that his wife was in the West, and that he expected her to return after his health was somewhat improved. She talked with him about art and books and life in general. Music appeared to be to her a thing apart. She did not care much for it. The nephew, Davis Simpson, was neither literary nor artistic, and apparently cared little for music. He was a buyer for one of the larger department stores, a slight, dapper, rather dandified type of man, with a lean, not thin, but tight-muscled face, and a short black mustache and he appeared to be interested only in the humors of character, trade, baseball, and methods of entertaining himself. The things that pleased Eugene about him were that he was clean, simple, direct, good-natured, and courteous. He apparently had no desire to infringe on anybody's privacy, but was fond of stirring up light discussions and interpolating witty remarks. He liked also to grow flowers and to fish. The care of a border of flowers which glorified a short gravel path in the back yard received his especial attention evenings and mornings. It was a great pleasure for Eugene to come into this atmosphere after the storm which had been assailing him for the past three years, and particularly for the past ninety days. He was only asked to pay eight dollars a week by Mrs. Hilberdell, though he realized that what he was obtaining in home atmosphere here was not ordinarily purchased at any price in the public market. The maid saw to it that a little bouquet of flowers was put on his dressing-table daily. He was given fresh towels and linen in ample quantities. The bath was his own. He could sit out on the porch of an evening and look at the water uninterrupted, or he could stay in the library and read. Breakfast and dinner were invariably delightful occasions for though he rose at five forty-five in order to have his bath breakfast and be able to walk to the factory and reach it by seven mrs hilberdahl was invariably up as it was her habit to rise thus early and had been for years she liked it eugene in his weary mood could scarcely understand this davis came to the table some few moments before he would be leaving he invariably had some cheery remark to offer for he was never sullen or gloomy his affairs, whatever they were, did not appear to oppress him. Mrs. Hilberdell would talk to Eugene genially about his work, 
this small social center of which they were a part and which was called Riverwood, the current movements in politics, religion, science, and so forth. There were references sometimes to her one daughter, who was married and living in New York. It appeared that she occasionally visited her mother here. Eugene was delighted to think that he had been so fortunate as to find this place. He hoped to make himself so agreeable that there would be no question as to his welcome, and he was not disappointed. Between themselves, Mrs. Helberdahl and Davis discussed him, agreeing that he was entirely charming, a good fellow, and well worth having about. At the factory where Eugene worked, and where the conditions were radically different, he made for himself an atmosphere which was almost entirely agreeable to him, though he quarreled at times with specific details. On the first morning, for instance, he was put to work with two men, heavy clods of souls, he thought at first, familiarly known about the yard as John and Bill. These two, to his artistic eye, appeared machines, more mechanical than humanly self-directive. They were of a medium height, not more than five feet nine inches tall, and weighed about one hundred and eighty pounds each. One had a round, poorly modeled face, very much the shape of an egg, to which was attached a heavy yellowish mustache. He had a glass eye, complicated in addition by a pair of spectacles which were fastened over his large, protruding red ears with steel hooks. He wore a battered brown hat, now a limp, shapeless mass. His name was Bill Jeffords, and he responded sometimes to the sobriquet of One Eye. The other man was John, alias Jack Duncan, an individual of the same height and build, with but slightly more modeling to his face and with little, if any, greater intelligence. He looked somewhat the shrewder. Eugene fancied there might be lurking in him somewhere a spark of humor, but he was mistaken. Unquestionably, in Jeffords, there was none. Jack Stix, the foreman carpenter, a tall, angular, ambling man with red hair, a red mustache, shifty, uncertain blue eyes, and noticeably big hands and feet, had suggested to Eugene that he work with these men for a little while. His idea was to try him out, as he told one of the associate foremen, who was in charge of a gang of Italians working in the yard for the morning, and he was quite equal to doing it. He thought Eugene had no business here and might possibly be scared off by a little rough work. He's up here for his health, he told him. I don't know where he comes from. Mr. Brooks sent him up here with orders to put him on. I want to see how he takes the real work for a while. Look out you don't hurt him, suggested the other. He don't look very strong to me. He's strong enough to carry a few spiles, I guess. If Jimmy can carry him, he can. I don't intend to keep him at it long. Eugene knew nothing of this, but when he was told to come along, new man, and shown a pile of round, rough ash trunk cuttings, six inches in diameter and eight feet long, his courage failed him. He was suffered to carry some of these to the second floor, how many he did not know. "'Take them to Thompson up there in the corner,' said Jeffords, duly. Eugene grasped one uncertainly, in the middle, with his thin, artistic hands. He did not know that there were ways of handling lumber, just as there were ways of handling a brush. He tried to lift it, but could not. The rough bark scratched his fingers cruelly. "'You gotta learn something about that before you begin, I guess,' said Jack Duncan, who had been standing by, eyeing him narrowly. 
Sheffords had gone about some other work. I suppose I don't know very much about it, replied Eugene, shamefacedly, stopping and waiting for further instructions. Let me show you a trick, said his associate. There's tricks in all these here trades. Take it by the end this away and push it along until you can stand it up. Stoop down now and put your shoulder right next to the middle. Got a pad under your shirt? You ought to have one. Now, put your right arm ahead of you on the spile. Now, you're all right. Eugene straightened up, and the rough post balanced itself evenly but crushingly on his shoulder. It appeared to grind his muscles and his back and legs ached instantly. He started bravely forward, straining to appear at ease, but within fifty feet he was suffering agony. He walked the length of the shop, however, up the stairs and back again to the window where Thompson was, his forehead bursting with perspiration and his ears red with blood. He fairly staggered as he neared the machine and dropped the post heavily. "'Look what you're doing,' said a voice behind him. It was Thompson, the lathe worker. "'Can't you put that down easy?' "'No, I can't,' replied Eugene angrily, his face tinged with a faint blush from his extreme exertion. He was astonished and enraged to think they should put him doing work like this, especially since Mr. Haverford had told him it would be easy. He suspected at once a plot to drive him away. He would have added, These are too damn heavy for me, but he restrained himself. He went downstairs wondering how he was to get up the others. He fingered about the pole gingerly, hoping that the time taken this way would ease his pain and give him strength for the next one. Finally he picked up another and staggered painfully to the loft again. The foreman had his eye on him but said nothing. It amused him a little to think Eugene was having such a hard time. It wouldn't hurt him for a change, would do him good. When he gets four carried up, let him go, he said to Thompson, however feeling that he had best lighten the situation a little. The latter watched Eugene out of the tail of his eye, noting the grimaces he made and the strain he was undergoing but he merely smiled. When four had been dropped on the floor, he said, that'll do for the present, and Eugene, heaving a groan of relief, went angrily away. In his nervous, fantastic, imaginative, and apprehensive frame of mind, he imagined that he had been injured for life. He feared he had strained a muscle or broken a blood vessel somewhere. Good heavens, I can't stand anything like this, he thought. If the work is going to be this hard, I'll have to quit. I wonder what they mean by treating me this way. I didn't come here to do this. Visions of days and weeks of back-breaking toil stretched before him. It would never do. He couldn't stand it. He saw his old search for work coming back, and this frightened him in another direction. I mustn't give up so easily, he counseled himself, in spite of his distress. I have to stick this out a little while, anyhow. It seemed in this first trying hour as though he were between the devil and the deep sea. He went slowly down into the yard to find Jeffords and Duncan. They were working at a car, one inside receiving lumber to be piled, the other bringing it to him. Get down, Bill, said John, who was on the ground, looking up at his partner indifferently. You get up there, new man. What's your name? Whitla, said Eugene. Well, my name's Duncan. We'll bring the stuff to you, and you pile it. It was more heavy lumber, as Eugene apprehensively observed. Quarter-cut joists for some building, four-by-fours they called them, but after he was shown the art of handling them, 
they were not unmanageable. There were methods of sliding and balancing them which relieved him of a great quantity of labor. Eugene had not thought to provide himself with gloves, though, and his hands were being cruelly torn. He stopped once to pick a splinter out of his thumb, and Jeffords, who was coming up, asked, "'Ain't you got no gloves?' "'No,' said Eugene. "'I didn't think to get any.' "'Your hands will get pretty well bugged up, I'm afraid. Maybe Joseph will let you have his for today. You might go in and ask him.' "'Where's Joseph?' asked Eugene. "'He's inside there. He's taking from the plane.' Eugene did not understand this quite. He knew what a plane was, had been listening to it sing mightily all the morning, the shavings flying as it smoothed the boards, but taking. Where's Joseph, he asked, of the plane driver. He nodded his head to a tall, hump-shouldered boy of perhaps twenty-two. He was a big, simple, innocent-looking fellow. His face was long and narrow, his mouth wide, his eyes a watery blue his hair a shock of brown, loose and wavy, with a good sprinkling of sawdust in it. About his waist was a big piece of hemp bagging tied by a grass rope. He wore an old faded wool cap with a long visor in order to shield his eyes from the flying chips and dust, and when Eugene came in, one hand was lifted protectively to shield his eyes. Eugene approached him deprecatingly. One of the men out in the yard said, "'You might have a pair of gloves you would lend me for today.' I'm piling lumber, and it's tearing my hands. I forgot to get a pair. Sure, said Joseph, genially, waving his hand to the driver to stop. They're over here in my locker. I know what that is. I've been there. When I come here, they rubbed it into me, just as they're doing to you. Don't you mind? You'll come out all right. Up here, for your health, are you? It ain't always like that. Some days, there ain't most nothing to do here. Then some days again... There's a whole lot. Well, it's good healthy work, I can say that. I ain't most never sick. Nice fresh air we get here, and all that. He rambled on, fumbling under his bagging apron for his keys, unlocking his locker, and producing a great pair of old yellow lumber gloves. He gave them to Eugene cheerfully, and the latter thanked him. He liked Eugene at once, and Eugene liked him. A nice fellow, that, he said, as he went back to his car. Think of how genial he gave me these. Lovely. If only all men were as genial and kindly disposed as this boy, how nice the world would be. He put on the gloves and found his work instantly easier, for he could grasp the joists firmly and without pain. He worked on until noon when the whistle blew, and he ate a dreary lunch, sitting by himself on one side, pondering. After one, he was called to carry shavings, one basket after another, back through the blacksmith's shop to the engine room in the rear, where there was a big shaving bin. By four o'clock he had seen almost all the characters he was going to associate with for the time that he stayed there. Henry Forms, the blacksmith, or the village smith, as Eugene came to call him later on, Jimmy Suds, the blacksmith's helper, or maid of all work, as he promptly named him, John Peters, the engineer, Malachi Dempsey, the driver of the great plane, Joseph Mews, and, in addition, carpenters, tinsmith, plumbers, painters, and those few exceptional cabinet-makers who passed through the lower floor now and then, men who were about the place from time to time and away from it at others, all of whom took note of Eugene at first as a curiosity. Eugene was himself intensely interested in the men. 
Harry Forms and Jimmy Suds attracted him especially. The former was an undersized American of distant Irish extraction, who was so broad-chested, swollen-armed, square-jawed, and generally self-reliant and forceful as to seem a minor titan. He was remarkably industrious, turning out a great deal of work and beating a piece of iron with a resounding lick which could be heard all about the hills and hollows outside. Jimmy Suds, his assistant, was like his master, equally undersized, dirty, gnarled, twisted, his teeth showing like a row of yellow snags, his ears standing out like small fans, his eyes askew, but nevertheless with so genial a look in his face as to disarm criticism at once. Everybody liked Jimmy Suds because he was honest, single-minded, and free of malicious intent. His coat was three and his trousers two times too large for him, and his shoes were obviously bought at a second-hand store. But he had the vast merit of being a picture. Eugene was fascinated with him. He learned shortly that Jimmy Suds truly believed that buffaloes were to be shot around Buffalo, New York. John Peters, the engineer, was another character who fixed his attention. John was almost helplessly fat and was known for this reason as Big John. He was a veritable whale of a man, six feet tall, weighing over three hundred pounds, and standing these summer days in his hot engine room, his shirt off, his suspenders down, his great welts of fat showing through his thin cotton undershirt. He looked as though he might be suffering, but he was not. John, as Eugene soon found out, did not take life emotionally. He stood mostly in his engine-room door when the shade was there, staring out on the glistening water of the river, occasionally wishing that he didn't need to work, but could lie and sleep indefinitely instead. Would you think them fellas would feel pretty good sitting out there on the poop-deck of them there yachts smoking their perfectos? he once asked Eugene, apropos of the magnificent private vessels that passed up and down the river. I certainly would, laughed Eugene. Ah, ha! That's the life for your Uncle Dudley. I could do that there with any of them. Ah, ha! Eugene laughed joyously. Yes, that's the life, he said. We could all stand our share. Malachi Dempsey, the driver of the Great Plain, was dull, tight-mouthed, silent, more from lack of ideas than anything else, though oyster-wise he had learned to recede from all manner of harm by closing his shell tightly. He knew no way to avoid earthly harm, save by being preternaturally silent, and Eugene saw this quickly. He used to stare at him for long periods of time, marveling at the curiosity his attitude presented. Eugene himself, though, was a curiosity to the others, even more so than they to him. He did not look like a working man, and could not be made to do so. His spirit was too high, his eye too flashing and incisive. He smiled at himself, carrying basketful after basketful of shavings from the planing room, where it rained shavings, and from which, because of the lack of a shavings blower, they had to be removed back to the hot engine room where Big John presided. The latter took a great fancy to Eugene, but something after a fashion of a dog for a master. He did not have a single idea above his engine, his garden, at home, his wife, his children, and his pipe. These, and sleep, lots of it, were his joys, his recreations, the totality of his world. End of section 49